so far in this series, we've talked about the loving life of Jesus and how he led a loving life. We've talked about how the life of Jesus was an incorruptible life. He led an incorruptible life. And then last week, uh, we talked, I think we talked about the peaceful life of Jesus, how he led a peaceful life, and we can do those things too. Uh, but in this series, what I'm driving at and what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to get out of this series is that Jesus was a man who walked the earth. We're not talking about in this particular series the Jesus who's at the right hand of the Father now. We're not talking about the Alpha and the Omega, although he was still that. But we're just focusing on that time that he walked the earth and how that is relevant to us in this particular series. Amen? And so we've looked at all of these things, and now I want to go into, we want to look at the supernatural life of Jesus. He lived a supernatural life when he walked the earth. But as you're excited about Jesus' supernatural life, if you're excited uh, as I am, I'm excited to know about the supernatural life of Jesus, we must first understand that Jesus led a natural life. Jesus was a natural person for those 33 years that he walked the earth. We have to get that into our head. And the reason is, you might not like the reason, but the reason is because it begins to eliminate all of our excuses about living an overcoming, abundant life, a loving life, an incorruptible life, a peaceful life that Paul calls us to be peaceful with all men as much as it is in you to do. And so we, we begin to uh, shed those excuses because we begin to understand that Jesus himself was the son of God, but guess what? He was the son of man for a time as he walked the earth. So before we get into the supernatural life of Jesus next week, let's look at the natural life of Jesus. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Or if you have your smartphone or your tablet or your Apple Watch or however you can get the scripture, I don't know. Maybe you got to go back into the recesses of your mind because you've uh, memorized all the scripture. If you've done that, you're better than me. So, you know, pull, pull that scripture out, you know, Hebrews chapter 2. What we're going to talk about uh, before we get into Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we're going to talk about this natural life of Jesus. Now, all through chapter 1 of Hebrews, um, it really discusses how Jesus was greater than the angels, how, you know, he was God, and it talks about the deity of Jesus. And now, as we get into chapter 2, we begin to see, wait a minute, we as people, flawed people that we are, can somehow, way relate to Jesus. This one who Hebrews chapter 1 describes as greater than the angels. Well, wait a minute. We can relate to him. Let's see how. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. And if you have a different version, amen, we'll get to the same place together. Why? Because we have the same Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit, amen. We'll get there together. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and the Bible says this, says, but we, 
see Jesus. It's quite a long passage I'm going to read here all the way through verse 18, but stick with me. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Side note here, it says, you'll see where he talks about brethren and sons. But remember, Paul clarified this very clearly that in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, male or female. So we're not necessarily talking about male when we talk about sons and brethren. We're talking about brethren and sistren. Okay, keep that in mind. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name, talking about the Father, to my brethren, talking about you and me. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Read that part again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Who's the seed of Abraham? Come on, we are. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And, and now when you look at this passage here and you juxtapose it with chapter one, you begin to have questions, especially those who don't have a revelation of Jesus. Maybe the unchurched or unsaved or someone who uh, doesn't really have a revelation of the Messiah, of the deity of Jesus. It begins to raise questions, questions like how can Jesus be greater than angels if he died, yet angels don't die? These are, these are questions. Now, for some of you theologians, some of you who have been around church for a long time, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be a question to you. But you have to understand it's a valid question. And we, and we can't poo-poo the questions of people. Come on now. These are valid questions. If Jesus died, then how could he be the Messiah? These are, these are questions. These are good questions that people have. All right? And, and they need to be answered. To those people, it really doesn't make sense to the human mind that God would send a Messiah who would die on a cross rather than be a victorious 
conqueror. The, the Jews didn't understand it at that time. They didn't even understand it. You're going to restore your kingdom. Great. We're going to overthrow the Romans. Come on. Peter carried a sword. Peter was ready. Come on. We see that. He was ready. And so uh, it certainly doesn't make sense that God would rescue us through death and resurrection of his son. But in verse 10, what we just read here, the author argues it's fitting for Jesus to become a man and die on the cross. And all of the verses that follow explain why the only way Jesus could restore us to the dominion, the dominion of God's original creation was for him, Jesus, to become fully human. And why it wasn't possible for angels or for anyone else to accomplish that. Because God created you and me to have dominion. It's not something I'm making up. It's not some doctrine uh, that's a false doctrine. It's Bible. He created us to have dominion. You see, by nature, Jesus was obviously greater than the angels, as we see in chapter 1. But for a little while, for a time, he allowed himself to be lower than the angels that he created in order to restore you and me to that place of dominion that God originally created us to be. That's the sacrifice your Savior made. And, and the writer of, of Hebrews it doesn't in any way discount all of the things that you go through in life, all of the difficulties that the reader of Hebrews faces, the persecution, come on, that you and I uh, undergo. Uh, but he also makes it very, very clear as I, we read through this that Jesus not only understands suffering, but he went through far greater suffering uh, himself in order to make it possible for you and I one day to be able to be restored to the life that God has designed for us. He did that suffering for us. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted. Of course we will. That's part of it. When you talk about the suffering of Christians... Don't shout me down now. But when you talk about the suffering of Christians, you're not talking about the cross and you're not talking about some extreme poverty and dealing with, you know, uh, you know, just t terrible sicknesses and terrible life. And, you know, all of that through, uh, you know, where we have to crawl and beg and scrape and grope and come up on the rough side of the mountain. It doesn't mean that bad things don't come against us and bad things happen in life. It's called life. It, we know that. We know that. But if I remember correctly, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And I remember that Paul said, guess what? All these things are going to come against us. There's going to be times when there's, you know, some financial trouble that's going to look you in the eye. There's going to be times when relationships, you know, are going to seem like what is going on here. There's going to be some times in life where you're going to face some things. But Paul said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because Jesus did the real suffering for us already. And so the suffering we must go through is the persecution. Because you say, I stand up for the name of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? You're not tolerant. So you don't, you don't agree with the LGBTQ. Then you're just old school and you're not tolerant and we hate you. Really? Wow, who's showing love and who's showing hate now? Come on. Never said I hated you. 
Never said I hated you. Just because you live a lifestyle that's contrary to the word of God and God wants you to be an overcomer and God wants you to live a kingdom life that's better. I never said I hate you, but you certainly said it to me. Side note. All right, we keep moving. And these same questions need to be answered today about who Jesus is, knowing that Jesus became a man to make it possible for us to be the people that God designed us to be. And when you really dive into this book of Hebrews, you find that the author here, what, what that person is really doing is they're, 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 they're addressing uh, a thought process called docetism. Docetism, the docetists believe this, they believe that Jesus, the Jesus that walked the earth, wasn't really in a human body. He was, he was, it was a spirit that just projected himself as human. He was God, he was divine, and, uh, you know, he walked the earth, but it wasn't really him as a person. It was God that walked the earth. I mean, how else could he endure the cross? How else could he go through the things that he went through? How else could he walk on water? You have to be a spirit to do that. How else could he cast out demons? You have to be a spirit. That's what the docetists believe. And they taught that Jesus' body only appeared to be real, okay, but that he was really spiritual. He, you know, when he walked on the beach, he didn't leave footprints. So much for all those footprint poems that we read. That's what they believe. That's what the docetists. So the, the author of Hebrews is addressing that, saying, no, 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 no. Your theology is flawed. Yeah, you're correct to say that Jesus is almighty and he's the alpha and the omega and that Jesus was a spirit or is a spirit. You're correct in all of those things. But you're flawed when you think that Jesus did not come to the earth as a man with flesh and blood, just as you and I. And I think for us, even us, churched Christian people, we have to get a deeper revelation of this in order to know who we are, to understand that you can overcome no matter what's happened in your life. You might be a person that says, listen, I've failed every other day in my life. Guess what? This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, and you're an overcomer. Just start walking like it. Just start walking like it. So interesting. Uh, our daughter, our daughter called me um, last night, yesterday, and um, was distraught, okay? And, you know, she's a young person up in Boston, and uh, she's a social worker. And so being a social worker, she has to carry people around and, you know, take kids to where they need to go. And she has, has families in her car. And, man, I mean, she had an old car. I don't even know what, what it was. You know, but it's, a, it's probably 20 years old. And, you know, she was making it. She just got out of college. You know, it was paid off, you know, and uh, but it's starting to fail, you know. And so she needs a car. She needed a new car. So, you know, it, we said, yeah, well, you know, you're doing well. You know, you've got a good job, making good money, you know, save up, buy your car. So she needed to buy a car right away. So she went uh, to get a car, went in the dealership and, and uh, thought she liked this car and uh, she was by herself, first of all. We told her to take my brother-in-law with her, all right, my, her sister's husband. He's up there with him, but she didn't. She went by herself, and uh, she gets in this car, drives around, and salesman is, you know, a salesman, anybody's a salesman, I, forgive me, I'm not talking bad about you, but you know how salesmen, salespeople can be, you know, this is great, this is great. And so she gets back, and in her heart, she really doesn't like it. 
it's a good car, but there's just things about it she doesn't like. She just doesn't like, you know, how the seat goes and the emergency brake in the middle and just weird things. She doesn't like it. But the more he talks, she can't bring herself to say, I don't like this car. I want to look at another one. She signs the papers and buys the car. And then later on, she calls me, Dad, I don't know why I bought this car. It's, you know, my wife comes home. She comes over. What's wrong, Neil? I don't know why I bought this car. Why did you buy the car? I don't know. Did you take Chris with you? No, I just went by myself. So here's the thing. So to her, life is over. I bought this car. I messed up. Now what am I going to do? It's a certain payment. Uh, my life is over. That's the, way, that's the way she thinks. I said, young daughter, Nia, first of all, there's a law, federal law in the books that says you have three days. Anytime you buy a car, you can go back, okay? And the place you bought the car from tells you you have 30 days. They told her you have 30 days, you know, to come back, change it out. So I said, number one, life is not over. You can go back, <laughs> you can go back and exchange the car for the one you want and you have time, take your time and go through it. And I said, here's the issue. Here's what I see with that. And I'm not, unre I, I don't un not relate to this. I do relate to her. Okay. I relate 100% to her, know what she's going through. I said, when you walk into a place like that, what you have to realize is that you have 100% of the power. It's your money that you're spending and your decision to buy what you want to buy. You have 100% of the power. But somehow we were made to feel as though we have half the power and the salesperson has half the power. As if they would say, well, if you don't want to buy this car, you're lost. And it makes us feel bad. Instead of us saying, okay, fine, buy. I mean, I can buy a car anywhere. You're the only person that's selling a car. Wait, 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 let's talk about it some more. No, you have 100% of the power, 100%. I think sometimes as Christians, we don't realize that in our life, we have the power. The power was given to Jesus in heaven, all power. How much is left out of all? Come on, nothing. All power was given to him in heaven and in earth. Guess where Jesus is? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Guess who's on earth? You and I, the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. We don't realize it. We're being made to think that we don't have the power. But we have the power with our words, with our thoughts, and the word of God. We have the word of God. And I think Jesus walking the earth lets us understand that we can be just like him because 1 Peter chapter 2 says that he was an example for us. First of all, how do we know? How, what does that mean to us? How, how do we know that? First of all, we know that Jesus lived a natural life because, number one, he couldn't have lived as, as just a spirit that materialized because he was born, number one, to a natural mother. He was born to a natural mother. Come on. Matthew 1.25 says this, says of Mary that she brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus, he was born to a human natural mother. Number two, he experienced hunger and thirst. You can put those up, uh, Tegan. He experienced hunger and thirst. Now, a spirit doesn't do that. Come on. No, Matthew 21, 18 says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he was hungry. 
He was hungry. And then in John 19, 28, knowing all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is when he was on the cross. He said, I thirst. Even as he was on the cross, he said, I thirst. Uh, spirit, I don't know that. It, I don't know about it. I mean, I don't walk around. I know I am a spirit, but I know I'm confined by this flesh. And so I, I don't think a spirit would thirst. And then he experienced temptation. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Without, it is possible. It is possible. I didn't say probable. I didn't say not difficult. But it's possible for you not to sin. It, it is possible. It's possible. And, and, and it won't ever happen if in your mind you say, no, that was Jesus. That's not, I can't do that. That was Jesus. Yeah, that was Jesus. He was a man just like you. He was a human being just like you. Okay? With a mouth, teeth, eyes, pain, whatever. He's, if he stubbed his toe, you don't think it hurt if he stubbed his toe? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he has some insight that he always avoided. He was a carpenter, so he probably avoided everything. He didn't stub his toe like we did. But if he would have, it would have hurt just like it does you. Come on. He experienced fatigue. Remember at Jacob's well? You remember the story of that? The woman at the well? In John 4, uh, 6 says Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was wearied from his journey. How would a spirit get wearied from his journey? And then also he died. He died. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So this is how we know that Jesus lived a natural life. He lived a natural life. Well, okay, now we know that Jesus lived a natural life. Brother Mike, what does that have to do with me? How does that affect me? He lived a natural life. How does it affect me? How, does it, how do I relate to that? How do I relate to it? Well, first of all, there's three ways. One, we need to understand that he overcame death. And what does that do for us? Okay, well, he overcame death. What does that do for us? Well, if he's an example for us, if he overcame death, guess what? You've overcome death as well. You've overcome it. You've overcome it. Not just death itself, but the Bible, we just read it. It said the fear of death, which is a tool that Satan uses to put us in slavery. I'm going somewhere with this one. It, the fear of death. I'm not telling you that, oh, well, I don't care, you know, if I die, so let me just go walk on 69 and dare somebody to hit me because it doesn't matter if I die or not. No, that's not the mentality that I'm telling you. But what I'm telling you is now all of a sudden you don't have any fear. There is nothing that anyone can do to you. Come on. Nothing anyone can do to you, including death. You would have no fear of it. So it allows you to live the abundant, overcoming, unashamed life for Jesus. Because what are you going to do? Kill me? <laughs> the only way for Jesus to overcome death was to be completely human and to actually die a physical death on the cross. If Jesus didn't die a physical death on the cross, my friend, that means that his resurrection was a fraud and that we have no hope a future resurrection, but we do, okay? As a man, he did indeed die and was raised back to life to prove his power over death, both spiritual and physical. 
How does this comfort us? Well, we realize what Paul meant when he said in Philippians chapter 1 that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we can begin to understand what he's saying, what he meant when he said that. What he's saying is, listen, I'm not afraid of death, therefore I don't need to be afraid to proclaim the name of Jesus. I can proclaim the name of Jesus here on earth. I can live the kingdom life that he, I can pursue it unashamedly. I don't, I don't have to worry. Well, you know, if I do that, uh, I don't know somebody, you know, they, 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 I, I might get killed. You hear about what's happening. No, you don't have any fear. There is nothing that anyone can threaten you with that should bring you fear. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Jesus overcame death, and so have you. That should take that fear away. Now you can go full bore. That's all I'm telling you. Now let's go live life, because I'm not afraid. That's the point I'm trying to get to. He overcame death for us. Second thing is, he reconciled us to the Father. He reconciled us. You know, the writer of Hebrews is going uh, into much more detail about this idea of Jesus being our high priest, all right, that we have an advocate with the Father, and how it's sufficient uh, to understand that the role of the high priest in the Old Testament was to act as an intermediary who brought man to God through our sacrifices. But all the high priest in the Old Testament could do was show the way to God temporarily, to atone for the sins by sacrificing on their behalf. Again, don't shout me down. Let me finish what I'm saying. Jesus didn't come to show you the way. Maybe I should let that sit for a minute. He didn't come to show you the way. He is the way. He comes to say, I am the way. I'm not showing you some way. And I guess you could say, okay, it's semantics. Yeah, he's showing us. Right, I get that. But he didn't come like Buddha or like, uh, you know, whoever else. Some other religion is coming to show you the way. No, I am the way. I am the way, the way. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Bam. <laughs> no one comes to the Father except by me. You're a closed-minded Christian. About that, I am. I'm sorry. I know it's in, in, in style to be open-minded. And I'm open-minded about a lot of things. But not that. Not that particular one. He is the only way. There is no other way. Only the name of Jesus. Anyone who tries to come up some other way is a thief and a robber. He's the only door, the only way. Come on. And he's the one who reconciled us to the Father. He is called the founder of our salvation in verse 10. The, the word literally means trailblazer. He did it himself. Just follow me. I don't have to show you the way. Just look at me. Walk where I walk. Walk in my footsteps. Do what I did. Say what I said. And you'll know the way. And he had to be 100% human to do that. We can't walk in a spirit's footsteps if we're not yet in spiritual form. He became human for us to do that. We're told in verse 17 that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. That's a fancy word that really it means that really what that word in, in other versions, you'll see atone. He atoned for our sin. 
And I understand atone. You know, I'm not saying that's not correctly translated. It is. He atoned for our sins. But this word propitiation is interesting because it literally means to appease a deity, to do all the things necessary to appease God. He did all the things. He took all the steps, did everything necessary to appease God. He did all of them. We don't have to do anything to appease God. Don't have to do anything to do that. We don't have to do anything to earn his favor. Come on, we don't have to do anything to earn his love. Jesus was a propitiation for us. Jesus satisfied that wrath. You see, there was a wrath of God. There was a separation there. And not only did he atone so that God would say, okay, that's fine, you made it right. No, he bridged the gap as if there was never a gap. Now you're starting to understand what he did. He bridged the gap as if there was never a gap. It's not, you're not going to see a piece of wood here and then, oh, a, a weird burnt, discolored piece of wood that's got some glue and then a piece of wood over here. When Jesus was done, it all looks like one piece of wood. You don't even know where the gap was. That's propitiation. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's what Jesus does by standing in the gap. And then finally, he makes you and I part of his family. DNA, family. Come on now. We're family. And I don't, I don't have time to go into it, but you'll read where Paul talks about, uh, you know, adoption and those kind of things. But that word adoption that Paul talks about is not, is not translated the same way that we understand adoption. The way we understand it, the way we do it as humans is if Dietrich and I adopted a child, they don't have our same DNA, but we bring them in as part of our family. They have all the same rights as Carter's would, right, and all of that, but they're not part of our DNA. But what Paul's talking about goes a step further. Now, all of a sudden, when you accept Christ and you accept the blood of Christ, the adoption he's talking about weaves you in with the same DNA and the same blood that Jesus has. And so your rights are legit. Your rights are legit, baby. You are part of the, you are pedigree. You are part of the kingdom. You are a child of the king. You are heir to the throne through pedigree. That's who you are. Now you can walk into the car place and say, I'll get the car I want to get. Come on. <laughs> Come on. He made us part of his family. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Will you please think about that for a moment? You are, with all the things that you've done, all your failings, the way when you look in the mirror, all of, all of those, uh, you know, splotches and dots and weird stuff that you see about yourself, with all of that, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You think about that for a moment. And as a result of being the righteousness, he, he says he is not ashamed. Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and sisters. To call you and I his brothers and sisters. We got to think about that for a moment. But because he chose to take on flesh and blood and become like us, he can call us his brothers and sisters. This is one of those ideas that I can't fully wrap my mind around. The fact that the God of the universe would not be ashamed to call me his brother. But I sure do rejoice in that. I sure do rejoice in that. Now listen, Jesus lived a perfect life to show us the way back to the heavenly father. And although we read through here, 
He never sinned. Jesus was still baptized to be obedient to God. Why? To teach us that baptism is a requirement for everyone? Sure. But also to teach us that we can be the same obedient that he was to the Father. He's also a perfect example of love. His life on earth, uh, he cared for the poor. He healed the blind. He welcomed little children. He forgave those who crucified him. Perfect example of love. Come on. His love is endless and available to anyone who needs it. Endless. And so you and I, I've been saying it, but you and I, I want it to get into your spirit. I want it to get into your heart. You and I are more than conquerors. We are overcomers. We are the head and not the tail. All right? We are above and never again belief, beneath. We are released from the curse of the law. We are the seed of Abraham. Come on, do I need to keep going? We are kings and priests. We are overcomers. Now, I don't know about you, but that would help me in dealing with the everyday things. It's not discounting. Again, as I said, the writer of Hebrews doesn't discount all the things that come against you. See, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preaching some gospel that's, you know, so fluffy that nothing's ever going to come against you. Nobody's ever going to talk about you or the bank's not going to say something against you or you're not going to make a mistake. I'm not telling you that. But what I'm telling you is you're an overcomer because Jesus was a propitiation for you. God, your father won't let you take advantage of that. You might think, well, what about if people take advantage of it? He's a father. He know how to give you a whooping. Come on. Father's not going to let you take advantage of that. He know how to give you a whooping to get you back in line. All right. You have to trust that he will. He does that. Trust him that he does that. 